We're going to be reading from Mark 1 to Mark 16. But before we do that, a little bit of a quiz. We're going to throw a couple of photos. You're going to tell me what this photo is. First photo up. What is this? Granola. Good guess. Close. Marshmallows. Good guess. Close. I can't hear the rest of you mumbling. Okay, rocks. Very good. You think it's rocks. It's actually salt and pepper. Salt and pepper, highly magnified. Next one up. All right, what's that? Oh, you've been looking online, my friends. It's Velcro, but obviously not, not from a distance. That's Velcro close up, obviously hanging on to that little blue stuff. Uh, next slide. What's that? It's, it looks like blades of grass. It's actually um, eye, eyelids. I, I, um, eyelashes. That's, that's eyelashes and skin. Freaky! Yeah, it's, that's what an eyelash is, magnified close up. Last one. What's that? That is the bacteria on your tongue. Gross, I know! Which is why some people make fun of me, why I will not drink out of a glass. If you drank out of the glass, I don't want your stuff touching my stuff. It's because that <laughs> causes sicknesses in my soul. Anyway. <laughs> There's a big difference between looking at an object and looking at an object close up. Now, it's good to see things close up because you get a view that you would miss otherwise, and it may be helpful. But sometimes you need to step back to see what something really is. And part of what we're doing in this series over the next year in Mark is we're going to do week after week the close investigation. We're going to get the magnified look. We're going verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter. But the problem with that is if you just look at an isolated verse or you just look at one thing, you can miss the big story. And so what we want to do tonight is uh, last week we looked at chapter 1, verse 1. But instead of going to verse 2 and then, and then logging along, we wanted to take a step back and look at the whole story of the Gospel of Mark. And he's saying, Jose, I can't read that. No problem. We have screens for such issues. And so this will be up on the screen in a moment. But we think it's really important to take a step back and look. And here's why. We're reading a 2,000-year-old document. And yes, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, like all the Bible, was written for us. Would you agree? It's written for our good. But it was not written to us. And so when Mark wrote this down, he was not writing to you and me. He was writing to the church that was living 10, 20, 30 years after the real-life movement of Jesus. And so in order for you and I to get the big and the small out of Mark, we need to gain some perspective. And so tonight we want to look at it in broad strokes. So here's the plan. It's pretty simple. Tonight we're going to go through a bit of background. For some of us, you've taken the House of Learning classes. You've studied the Bible. Maybe you've gone to Multnomah or taken a class online. The first 15 minutes for some may be new. It's not going to be normal line-by-line -line preaching. We're going to go through background and, and um, who the author was and what's the setting and you may say, well, why bother going through that? How many of you picked up the Essentials book when we did the Essential series? All right, more of you picked it up, you forgot. You, it's the colored book that was out there. Now, it had two pages on every book of the Bible. And so tonight, in a sense, we're going to go through those 
two pages. We're going to catch the big story. So that next week, Dom, who's taught here before, next week, Dom will be the teacher. And Tony, did you notice a new guy leading worship? Uh, Tony Pallada is part of, he's one of the worship leaders at Solid Rock. And he's part of the team that's going to go to Raleigh and plant the church this summer. But until then, over the spring, he's going to be here quite often. So we're really blessed. But Dom will be teaching and Tony will be leading next week. Uh, but we're going to go through background first. Then we're going to go through all 16 chapters to get the sweeping story of Mark. And then we're going to ask the so what question. Like, what's the value in going through the background? What's the value in seeing the big story? And are there any implications for me in my life, going to Liberty High School or Glencoe or wherever you go to school or work? What's the point? We're going to hit that in about 20, 30 minutes. Make sense? All right, so love me through the first 10 if you have school tomorrow and you're trying to avoid it tonight. All right, uh, first thing, author. If you're a note taker, some of it will be on the screen, some will not. Uh, who is the author of Mark? Trick question. Whenever you're doing something that people are not used to, you start easy. It's, it's Mark, but who's Mark? From what we know, Mark is the son of a wealthy widower in Jerusalem whose name was Mary. And so Mark, you're going to see him all over the New Testament. You may not recognize it or not. Uh, we think that it's at Mark's mother's house where the disciples of Jesus have the Last Supper. Remember the night before Jesus is going towards the cross, he has his final meal with his followers. We think that's at Mark's mother's house in Jerusalem. Now, if you've looked through the Bible, Acts chapter 12 is the first time we get a view of Mark, and he's called John Mark. And he, he traveled with uh, Paul and Barnabas to the early church leaders. And if you keep reading in Acts, you realize uh, Luke, who writes Acts, is clear that Mark somehow fell short of the team. And, and he, he left as these early travelers are sharing the gospel. Something happened, there's a fallout, and Mark is somehow at fault. But keep reading in Acts, and Mark is back in Paul's company again. First he travels with Barnabas, then he's back with Paul. And then later on, Mark is with the apostle Peter. All that to say, by the time that people are reading this gospel, the first of the four gospels that were written, this first written account of Jesus, it's written by an expert whose mother and family were known by Jesus himself. We don't think Mark was an early follower, but his mother was. And we know that Paul, who's one of the mega apostles, one of those early leaders, Mark has traveled with him. And later in his life, Mark is traveling with Peter. So Mark's been with the early Jesus followers, and he's probably a gifted, well-known, respected teacher in the church. Now, it's interesting that of all the four Gospels, uh, John Mark Comer decided it would be best that we read the Gospel written by John Mark. Hmm, a little bit of a ploy. I, I don't think there's any conspiracy. Actually, I think there is. But anyway, John Mark, and, and why John Mark and, and Mark? Because often in the first century, you had two names. Uh, so Paul is also called Saul, and, and John is probably his Jewish name, and Mark is probably his Greek name. So no mystique there. Now, one thing, um, it's not just written by John Mark, and we have to trust that. There's actually historical evidence on that. Let's throw up a quote on the screen by an early church leader called Papias, writing in the second century, Mark became Peter's interpreter, 
and wrote accurately all that he'd remembered, for Mark had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him, but later on, as I said, followed Peter, who used to give teaching. For to one thing he gave attention, to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements of them. So there's even early historical evidence that this is written by Mark. And here's the cool part. Like, what's the point of knowing an author? You never know how God may use your story. Now, we're reading an ancient document. Did John Mark know that this would still be circulated 2,000 years later? I got to think no. And the funny thing is, if most of us, when we think about when we came to faith and how we came to faith, for most of us, it was through the influence of God through someone else, wasn't it? You heard about your mom or dad who is excited about Jesus Christ. So some of you mom or dads, you heard about your college student who's been turned around and transformed by Jesus. There is innate power in story. And so Mark is just laying out what he heard from Paul, what he heard from Peter. And the encouraging word for us tonight is if you know anything about Jesus, or if you've read the Bible and are willing to share that, if you would encourage the people that you know to simply read about Jesus in Mark's own words, what would it look like if people who are far from God took a, a, a close investigation into the words of Jesus by an early follower? I, would be, I am convinced that many people would draw closer to Jesus just by finding out the story for themselves. So the encouraging word for us tonight in the author is that our stories have power. Well, let's move on to date. When was this written? We think that Jesus is crucified somewhere in the early 30s, 30 to 33, depending on how you date it. And this is written from what we could best guess is in the middle to late 60s AD. So it's about 30 or so years after the time of Jesus. Now, what do you need to know? And again, some of this background may not seem important, but it's going to come into play. What's happening in the 60s? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Some of you who are there, I wasn't. But on the, what's happening in the 60s, like AD? Uh, Israel, the people of God in Jerusalem, they're at war with Rome. So there's a battle, and the Jews are trying to revolt against the Romans and take over Jerusalem. So there is a battle from 66 to 70 AD. The empire, the Roman Empire, is an upheaval. Uh, the Caesar is Nero. Nero is literally insane and sets uh, Rome on fire. He's a pyro, goes crazy. He sets the city on fire, and then he blames the Christians. And so there's persecution against the Christians because the Caesar, who Caesar is some sort of son of God, so you got to trust him. Caesar says it was the Christians who did it. And so there is a worldwide attack against the early followers of Jesus. Now, finally, the Senate, the Roman Senate, figures out that Nero has gone mad, and he becomes an enemy of the state, and they go to arrest him, and Nero commits suicide. So at the time that Mark is writing, in two years, there are four different Caesars. The generals are fighting. Do you remember, like, the day after 9-11? How freaky it was? What's going to happen next? where there was all this uncertainty. Well, the exact time that Mark is writing this gospel, the known world is in upheaval because the greatest superpower is in flux. And Caesar is killing Caesar is killing Caesar. And what's going to happen next? And Nero started 
this campaign against Christians that hasn't ended. So people who are following Jesus are being killed for their faith. It's a scary time to be alive, let alone a follower of Jesus. And at that time, Mark puts pen to paper. Now, who's the original audience? Who, who's he writing to? Well, Mark doesn't say anything in Mark about who he's writing to, but the best that we can guess is that he's writing to Romans. He's writing probably, he's, he has Jews in mind subtly, but mostly he's writing to Romans. Here's how we know this. Whenever he talks about something Jewish, he has to explain it. So he doesn't talk about Isaiah. He talks about Isaiah the prophet. Why? Because a Roman wouldn't know who Isaiah was. And in the end of the story, we're going to find out one of the heroes in the early movement of Jesus at the cross and into the resurrection are Roman people. So Mark, even though he's Jewish in background, most Jews were anti-Roman because they'd taken over their land. But Mark is writing with a positive Jewish, uh, positive Roman lens because he's writing to Romans in Rome. If you're bored yet, say amen. Thank you for encouraging me. <laughs> Trick question. Like, no, no, we love it. Um, one thing that if you're wondering, well, what was it really like? There is a quote from an early historian called Tacitus, and let's throw that on the screen. Here's what's happening in the, in the 60s. He punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, this is Nero, a class of men despised for their vices, whom the crowd called Christians. The confessed members of the sect were arrested. Then on their confessions, huge numbers were convicted. Not so much on the charge of arson. Remember, Nero had said they had lit the city ablaze. As for the hatred of the human race. So he just wanted to kill him just to kill him. And mocking accompanied their end. They were covered with the skins of wild animals and torn to death by dogs. Or they hung on crosses. And when sunlight failed... They were burned to serve at lamps at night. So you're hearing about this Jesus. This Jesus movement is spreading. It's growing. Yet at the same time, as God is on the move, evil is on the move, and Mark writes. Now, we don't understand what it's like to be in this kind of suffering. So when Mark is writing, he's writing with a view to Christians who need to know the story of Jesus not just to become educated, but because they may be killed for their faith. And some of them are new, and most of them never met Jesus. And so Mark is writing so that they can go down with hope. Because this Jesus, as we're going to see in the story, is one who suffers. Why does Mark spend so much time on the suffering of Jesus to the point where half of it is about the last three weeks of Jesus' life, Chapters 11 through 16 are about one week of Jesus' life. Mark is obsessed with the end of the story, which is brutal and almost tragic. Now, you'd miss that if you didn't realize that Mark is writing to people who are being persecuted for their faith. So Mark waits the story on the end of Jesus to remind the followers, you have not been left alone. Jesus is risen. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus is with you. Hard for us to understand in a culture where our biggest complaint is my coffee wasn't at the right temperature and the barista said, amen. Why do we complain? I wanted it hotter. I want me to burn you. Anyway, another story altogether. 
genre. Fancy word for saying what kind of book is it? Uh, what kind of genre? It's a biography. So if you study the Gospel of Mark and you study other ancient first century biographies, they look almost identical. And what was important to know about an early biography in the first century is it focused not on the sideline details of what was the weather like and the secondary characters, but a first century biography was all about the person who you read about so that you could become like. Romans and Greeks really believed that personality could be copied. And so you read a biography about a hero or a Caesar because you wanted to be like him. You wanted to be valiant and strong and, and powerful. So you picked up on their traits, which is why we read magazines about people we don't know because we want to hear about them, know about them, to be like them. And so Mark is going to focus about Jesus, 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 Jesus. And Mark leaves out most of the other details. He's not concerned. It's not that those details aren't important or true. It's that Mark wants to do one thing. He wants you to know who Jesus is so that you can live and maybe even die like him. And so what's going to challenge us from the outset is the whole story is about Jesus. The challenge that we have is the center of our story is who? It's us. So be prepared to be convicted again and again and again as we come each week and study the Gospel of Mark because Jesus, not the disciples, not the demons, not Satan himself, Jesus is the center of the story. And the, the trick to following Jesus for a lifetime is by nature, I make myself the center of the story. I'm the most important person in history. Everyone exists to take care of me. We live like that without admitting it. We want what we want. We're going to get challenged by this biography because Jesus should be the center of our story. So part of following Jesus is knowing enough about him to follow him, and then day by day, month by month, year by year, being changed by him so that we make much of him and less of us. And that's the goal for every follower of Jesus, and that's our goal over the next year, that we'll be obsessed with Jesus They'll be absolutely enamored by Jesus. They'll be infatuated by Jesus. That will memorize the statements of Jesus. That will learn to think and act and live like Jesus. We want to be a Jesus people. And so part of that is to be a Jesus person. I must deal with my own pride. Not you and yours, me and mine. I must deal with my own ego and submit to Jesus. Well, that's a little bit of the background. We're done with that. All right, you ready to move on? Yes, now you're in Mark Mark chapter 1 is where we'll begin. What we want to do is see the framework of the 16 chapters. That's all we're going to do tonight. And we're going to get to why this is important. Two sides for those of you who don't have 20-20 vision all the way in the back. Radu, can you actually read this? Okay, good. Um, all right. So we got it on the screen. Big picture. There are two sides to Mark. Mark 1 to 8. And if you want to think of a theme, it's Jesus is the king. The king is here and his name is Jesus. Mark 1 through 8 frames out who this person is. And then there's this pivot point in Mark 8, and we're going to read that in a bit, so don't worry, Mark 8, 27, that's going to change and drive the second half of this gospel. And Mark 9 through 16, but he's not the kind of king you're expecting. So there's two halves. And, and if you want to know some more of the details, the first half of the book, and if you can see this. The first half of the story happens in Galilee up in the north of Israel. 
So if you're reading it, and they would all know it. We don't get it because we don't live in Israel. Jesus starts from as far as you can from Jerusalem, and the narrative works its way towards Jerusalem. So first eight chapters, first half, Jesus is up north. And then as the second half goes along, because the most important thing for Mark is what happens in Jerusalem. So he drives you from far off, and as we get closer to the end of it, he's journeying south, and he ends up in Jerusalem. Um, one other thing to note, I said it before, almost the first two-thirds of the book is about three years of Jesus' life. So Mark is not concerned about Jesus' birth. There's no angels, heard on highs, no Christmas story. Not that that's unimportant, but in a biography, he wants to highlight the most important thing. For Mark, it's the end, not the beginning. So he just jumps in. Jesus is an adult. doesn't say anything about Mary. He goes from the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, and he dries it. So first 10, 11 chapters, three years. 11 through 16 is all about two weeks. Final chapters, all about the last weeks. So that's a bit of the background. Well, let's, let's look at the first half, and we'll be partly on the screens and partly in your Bible to look at a few verses. So after, if, as we looking at the first half, the Incipit, which was a way of sharing the whole story in one sentence. So if you missed last week at the podcast, but what you didn't in, in, in Roman style, say everything up front and then unpack it. So Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's one verse one. And then the rest of the book is, how is he Messiah? How is he Son of God? In order to set that up, Mark gives us in chapter one a prologue. He talks about this baptism of Jesus. And at the baptism, we'll get to it in a couple of weeks, there's a voice heard from heaven. This is my son. So there's this huge, thunderous God speaks when Jesus is baptized. We're going to see when we get to it like 20 years from now, when you get to chapter eight, second half of the book, who is Jesus? He's the Messiah, the Son of God. Right after that, Jesus goes up in a mountain. He's, he's transfigured to his, his spiritual state, whatever that looks like. He, he becomes different. Elijah's there, and Moses is there, and God is there. And they say, this, and God says, this is my son. So Mark frames this, bam, you need to listen to Jesus. Second half, bam, I feel like Emerald, like, you know although I don't have garlic. You know, just the second half. So again, knowing the, the background and setting, super uh, uh, otherworldly. God speaks, listen to him. God speaks, listen to this Jesus. But what I want us to see tonight as we kind of flow through, after that, we're gonna see that Jesus has power over demons, power over the Jewish customs. Jesus has authority. He can do things no other teacher can do. He's a parable giver. He's a teacher in chapter four. Mark, unlike the other gospels, lumps the parables together. Uh, least amount of teaching of all four of the gospels. Again, Mark isn't interested that we know everything Jesus said. He wants you to know enough that you see what he did. That's how Mark is different from Matthew and Luke and John. Make sense? And then we're gonna go to chapters five to eight. Jesus does what happened in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God spoke to Abraham. Abraham's son was Isaac. Isaac's son was Jacob, whose name was also 
Israel, Israel had 12 sons who became the people of God. We need to know this because he explains it later on. What Jesus does is reinstitutes what happened early on. Just like God spoke to Abraham and 12 tribes became the people of God, Jesus is now going to take 12 men and, in a sense, reinstitute the nation of Israel to be more than just one group of people living in Jerusalem, but he's going to take these 12 and make the whole world his family. So the gospel is going to spread to the edges of the planets, and now it's not just going to be for ethnic people who were born and descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now in Jesus, anyone, anywhere can become a part of the family of God. So Jesus is going to do that by building a community of people, and that's chapters 5 through 8. Now, all that's ethereal. What I want us to do right now is we're going to look at a few verses in these first eight chapters that are question drivers. What's happening all throughout this, because he's a king, his name is Jesus, but the king is not as you would expect. Mark uses questions all throughout his gospel that are supposed to get us to think. They really happen, these conversations really happen, but Mark's point is that as the person in the story asked the question, we should be asking the question and this will come into play. What I want us to look at some of these questions that are all around Jesus. So go to chapter 2, verse 7. Early on when he's telling us the prologue and that Jesus has power, chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus is about to heal a man who's paralyzed. And, they, and the, the teachers come back and say, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins? But God alone. Mark is going to, you know, the, the, the teachers of the law who are against Jesus, because he's a miracle worker, but they don't believe he's from God. Who can forgive sins? Why is he dropping a question like that early on? Because we're going to see that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God. Son of God, Messiah, has power to forgive sins. So he's not giving us, he gave us the answer in one one. But all throughout, he's going to answer it by asking rhetorical questions. Go to chapter 4, verse 41. So 2, 7, who can forgive sins? Well, obviously the answer is Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 41, at the end of Jesus' parables, he calms a storm. The guys are in the boat. They're about to drown. And Jesus says, let's start in verse 40. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid that they're going to drown. Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified, and they asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. He, who, who can forgive sins? God alone. Who can calm nature? Again, Mark's just, well, it's Jesus, because after the question, just Jesus did just that. Jump over to chapter 6. Verse 2. Again, I just want us to see that the, the, these questions driving, driving the entire book. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, 6-2, and many who heard him were amazed. And then, then, then the, the, the teachers questioned him. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that he's been, that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing 
isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, son of, and the brother of James, and Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't, her, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So in another instance, as Mark's trying to lay out that Jesus is building this community of people who will follow him, he wants us to know through this question and answer, not everyone was keen on following Jesus. Just like right here, right now, a good chunk of us are following Jesus. And there are, are, my guess would be, I don't know, I'm going to guess a quarter. Maybe I'm wrong. It's just to be plain, 25% of us aren't following Jesus. So some of the people not following Jesus question, is he who he really claims to be? So Mark gives us this story so that we would know. Some people were wondering, we saw him born. How can this human be the son of God, Messiah? Wait a minute. His brothers and sisters are here. We know his mom. We know his father. He's just an ordinary guy. And, and Mark is, is, is playing in to the first century and to the common reader to say, no, Jesus is more than a normal, everyday Jewish boy. He's a prophet from God. He's God's Messiah. He's the sent one. Now, go over to chapter 8. Go to 8, uh, verse 37, because I want us to look at the hinge. Again, Mark 1 through 8, verse 37, is he's the king. But now there's this dramatic shift, and it happens through the same way, through this question and answer. Um, actually, let's jump to 8, verse, um, let's see here, 27. Verse 27. 8, 27 says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. So this whole question answered. Now everyone's been asking, who's this Jesus? Who's this Jesus? Now Jesus flips it. Who do people say that I am? And now look at this other response, verse 29. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Messiah. For the first time, like we saw last week, Someone begins to get, get it. First half, Jesus is Messiah. Peter begins to get a glimpse. But what does Messiah look like? What's Messiah do? Messiah is going to look very unlike their expectations. And so Jesus begins to teach what Messiah will do. So if you go to that other second half slide, if you would, Lee. In the second half, those top three ribbons... Three times after this statement, Jesus is going to say that Messiah is going to die and, and rise again. So Jesus doesn't say it once. He doesn't say it twice. Three times. Mark packages them together. Eight, nine, ten. Why? In chapter 11 and following, he actually does it. So Mark wants us to know that Jesus is unlike people's expectations. The challenge for us, I have to admit, is we're so accustomed to hearing the name Jesus that he's blasé. Jesus, for most of us, is common. The name is common. Church is common. Can I just remind you, my friend? Jesus is God in the flesh. And he's not just an ordinary man, although he, he did come, he was born, 
He experienced humanity just like us. He was tempted in every way, the Bible says, just like us, yet he did not cave into sin. But we've become so accustomed. They're like, hey, Jesus, what you up to today? And we forget that he's a king. But what Mark wants us to know is the first time that Jesus came, he didn't come to sit on a human throne. He came to go to a cross. So the first time Jesus comes, he comes to die for the servants like us so that we would be rescued from sin so that when he comes again as now king and ruling Lord of the universe, we will not just worship him as servants, but as sons and daughters. But Mark has to let us know that what the first part of the Bible story of the Old Testament was leading up to was not a king that God did not plan to come and smash the Romans and set up another throne. Rather, the king would humble himself and become a servant, and he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so for us, again, we know the story, it's commonplace. For the first century reader who's starting to doubt whether they can hold on to faith. Because if this Jesus story is fabricated, I am going to be pinned to a tree and doused with fluid and set on fire. Now, it's easy to sit with a latte and contemplate the meaning of the universe and whether Jesus is worth following. But if you are there and your life is on the line and your business is going to be taken and your home's going to be confiscated and your children could be murdered in front of you because you lay claim to Jesus, you need to know this is legit. And I think some of us, we are uninspired in our walk with Jesus because we haven't thought through the ramifications. If this story is true, then it deserves my absolute allegiance and I could count on Jesus to be with me in anything. Oh, and thank you, Dad. <laughs> no line getting an amen from your pops. All right, we'll, we'll continue on. I can call them pops. Um, so, uh, chapter 8, verse 31. I want you to see this, this hinge. Jesus says, don't tell anybody about it. Don't tell anyone I'm Messiah. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after the third day rise again. And the disciples don't get it because Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And Jesus looked, verse 33, he rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, merely human concerns. Peter, you don't get the story yet. You don't know what's happening. And then verse 34, this is huge. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, who did he say this to? I just read it. Who do you say this to? And who? The crowd and the disciples. Everybody heard this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. So before Jesus goes to the cross, he tells us exactly what it means to follow him. Isn't this good? Before he goes to the cross, he says, okay, I'm going to go do what I'm asking every single one of you to do. To identify with Jesus is not just to say, Jesus, you took the pain, give me the bennies. We all want the bennies. 
You do the hard work, I get the benefit. You do the suffering, I want all the freedom. No. To identify with Jesus is to identify him with, with him in his suffering and in his glory. You get both. Is following Jesus easy or hard? The answer is yes. Depending on what day it is. So if today it's hard, Jesus knows what it's like when it's hard. If it's easy, Jesus knows what it's like when it's easy. It's both. Disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus, get both. Now the big difference is Jesus died for sin. We don't do that. Jesus died for our sin. We don't, we don't fall in that way. But we do fight sin, don't we? And that's the distinction. As followers of Jesus, we take up the cross and we resist the temptation to fall back into the old lifestyle because following Jesus requires following Jesus. Novel idea. Tweet that. All right. Chapters 5 through 8. So we'll, we'll keep skimming. We'll move it fast and furious. Go to chapter 11. See, we skipped a few. We'll get back to that in six months. Chapter 11, verse 27. I want to leave you with a few more of these, these questions. So second half, we see Jesus is transformed power. He's not just a human. He's the son of God. He comes in towards Jerusalem. And then we get this question in chapter 11, verse 27. They arrive in Jerusalem while Jesus was talking, walking in the temple courts. The chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority do you do these things, they asked. Who gave you authority to do this? Again, who is this? By what authority do you have power? Isn't Jesus just normal? Mark uses questions to drive home what people were asking and what people are still asking. Uh, jump to 13, and it gets weird. Chapter 13, woo, it gets weird. Because Jesus, I'm like, oh, I gotta read 13. Um, Je Jesus does, ever read the book of Revelation? Okay, ever read the book of Revelation and think, what? You know, like, I don't get it. It's called apocalyptic. It's reading what's happening in language that's otherworldly. We will get to it eventually, but Mark takes chapter 13, and right before the cross, Jesus gives us insight about, into what's about to happen and uses language that for us seems absolutely weird, but would have been normal for first century life to speak in those kinds of terms. So we'll get to that later. Then from, from that apocalypse, he goes towards the cross, and then interestingly, go to 1539. We read it last week. But after the death of Jesus, you get the answer to the important question. So all of these questions, and there were more. I limited it. But I want you to see it runs all throughout 1539. When the Roman centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this was the Son of God. Who is this? And in the end, it's a Roman who answers it. And, and this, is, this is huge because early on in the story, Jesus, who himself was a Jew, the story was predominantly for those who were sons and daughters of Abraham. It was mostly for Jews. But Mark, in his telling of the gospel, is pushing the envelope 
because the story is not just going to be for one group of people who live in ethnic holy land Israel. It's going to be for everybody. And then you have in chapter 16, Jesus is risen and the story propels forward. Now, in the final couple of minutes that we have, that's the overview of it. A um, couple of things, get these resources if you're interested. Rule of thumb, thicker, harder. Thinner, easier. I'll let you figure it out. You know, like, read the number of pages. Uh, everyone should get the NT right. Uh, one on, it's a super thin one, and it's an easy read, and it's a fun read. It'll help you track. Every week we'll be tweeting and Facebooking what text we're going to go through. Read it again and again. I read the Gospel of Mark in 38 minutes and 36 seconds, but I rounded it up to 40. Uh, 40 minutes. A sitcom, which is dull, is 42, plus 18 minutes of commercials, the kiss of death of the American culture. And in 40 minutes, in one show, you can read the whole story of, of Jesus, which is amazing. He's the king of the universe, but he's given us something that we can read in 40 minutes. I'd encourage you, and here's our challenge, that every single one of us would read a portion of one of the Gospels every day for the rest of the year. What's the implications? Because if all of this is true and all this is important, we want to be saturated in the very writings of the early witnesses up to the life of Jesus. And so I would encourage you, part of what it will do, reading, when I say, it could be three verses. You know those little sub-chapter titles? You know, like little paragraphs? Read a paragraph. Read one little story. Read one little chapter. And we want to challenge ourselves to be experts in Jesus. Here's why. People are enamored by Jesus, but it's really hard for them to get to know him if we don't know him well. And it's easy to skate by and say, I'm, I go to church, I'm a Jesus follower, but not actually be fluid in who Jesus is and what he said and how he lived. And if you're here and you're searching, you're looking, and you want to know who Jesus is, let me just encourage you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Start with Mark because we're in it. Read it. And ask Jesus, if this is real, show yourself to be true, and you will not be disappointed. Now, the story of the Gospel of Mark is that, that Jesus is king. And by it, the implication is, I am not. Some of the reason why some of us struggle with our Bible reading is because we're reading it with the wrong lens. We come to the Bible, and, and you just tell me if this is you. You come, and you come to get something out of it. I want to get something. I'm, I'm having a down day or I'm having a great day. Man, is there something for me? The challenge is the scriptures are the story of God. It's about God, not us. Now, we're in that story because God created us to know him, love him, serve him, walk with him. But we're never supposed to be the center of the story. So the beauty about reading a little bit about Jesus every day it will begin to expose things in our life that are competing for Jesus to be king. And so here's an exercise. Can we do this? For the next year, can we simply take a little bit of time every day and, and ask two questions? If we could throw this up on the screen, Lee. Show me who you are and show me how to follow you. Do your little reading a verse, two verses, chapter, whatever. And, and write this in a card and put it in your Bible until it's so embedded in your soul. 
before you go to, to read it, show me who you are, show me how to follow you. Because Jesus in his life shows us how to live like Jesus. And if we'll take the time to just do that, I believe that we'll be absolutely transformed in the next year like never before. So here's what a little rhythm for your life, for those of you slightly type A who need steps. Here's what it could look like. Just get up in the morning and just pray, God, show me who you are. Show me how to follow you. Read a little portion of the text and just stop. Just stop. And listen. I think many of us are afraid of silence, you know? I need the next thing. I need, you know, I need Instagram while I read my Bible. Why? Because it's multitasking. Okay, I need to. And I, I think social media has made us addicted to more stuff. And I think we need to chill and just stop and just say, God, you got anything to say? I'm listening. Don't be surprised. You're probably not going to hear a voice. What you'll probably is begin to understand in your brain what you just read with a fresh lens. And it may freak you out. Like, whoa, I didn't get that before. Ding! That's God, by His Spirit, letting us know what He wants us to know. And then here's the challenge. Live that out. Just ask God, God, what can I do based on who you are and what I have learned from you? So tonight, I want to go towards the table thinking about, like, what's the exercise? Here's the exercise for tonight. Let's throw up one statement of Jesus. Let's assume this was in your reading and I changed the translation because it has a fresh read to it. This is Jesus, Mark 8.34. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, which sounds better than deny yourself, which is vague. <laughs> New Living Translation, Jim, hits it on this one. Turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. If you, if you give up your life for my sake, for the sake of the good news... You're going to save it. So here's what we want to do. We read that, and now we just want to take a moment. The band's going to come, and they're going to lightly play, but forget about them. You can read it, or you can read it in your Bible, and just take a moment, chill. We're in no rush here. What God might want, what God might want to say to you, what does he have for you? In light of what that says, what might God want to say to you? You say, he may speak to me? Like, yeah. So maybe close your eyes if that helps or read, read your Bible. Don't even stare up here. Don't, don't worry about the rest of us. We want to take a moment and let God speak. As you're um, writing or thinking, I want to throw up two questions on the screen. That um, as I was reading this afternoon, those two just hit me. What, what do we need to give up to follow Jesus? He says you must give up your selfish ways. What, what do I need to release that's not healthy, not good, not life-giving, not, not Jesus-centered? It's a part of me but it doesn't have to be. It's actually self-destructive. What is it that I need to give up so that I can pursue this Jesus? And then what do we need to take up? 
Jesus said, take up the cross and follow me. What do I need to add that's more like Jesus, that's more life-giving, that's more healthy, that's more robust, that's more beneficial for the people around me? What, what do I need to let go because it's unlike him? What do I need to add in? And maybe tonight as we go to the table and we reflect, maybe God would share, maybe something else, maybe he would give you something specific that you just need to let go because it's not good and it's not life-giving. And or he may say, yeah, I want you to add this to your life because this is from me and this will, this will give you joy, this will give you peace, this will give you hope, this will give you, this will give you life, this will make you generous. What is it?